0: The state of our state is, well, we're still in a global pandemic, so things aren't exactly strong.
1: Yeah, Governor Newsom pretty much said as much this week. We're going to get some perspectives on his address inside of an empty Dodger Stadium.
0: Plus, California's never-ending housing crisis continues to never end.
1: Welcome to California State of Mind from Cal Matters and Cap Radio. I'm Nigel Duara in Los Angeles, in for Elizabeth Aguilera.
0: And I'm Nicole Nixon in Sacramento. Nigel, it's great to have you on the show this week. Although this is kind of a weird week because we're marking one year since the first lockdowns, the pandemic being officially declared a pandemic. And I was just wondering, you know, one year ago, where were you when the pandemic became real for you? Do you remember?
1: Yeah, I don't think I'm ever gonna forget where I was, honestly. It was down at the bar where I usually am in Echo Park here. It was dark inside. People were standing six feet apart, drinking beer, watching an NBA game. And at halftime of that NBA game, they canceled it. This has never happened before. And I think that really hit the core with people. This is Vince Carter, it was gonna be his last game, and he only got to play in halftime. Um, What about you, Nicole? Any any specific memories from when you figured out it was real? (laughs)
0: Uh, well, mine also has to do with the NBA because I had planned this surprise trip for my fiance's birthday. We had lower bowl seats at the Staples Center. It was going to be such a good time. And the night, I it, i don't know if this was the same game. I honestly don't follow basketball that much. But <laughs> a Utah Jazz player, Rudy Gobert, tested positive and they canceled everything and I think they canceled the rest of the season or was in question so that was the night where I was like well gotta cancel this trip and then I ended up not seeing my fiance for three months because we were quarantining in different states (laughs) good times
1: that's brutal also we learned from Rudy Gobert don't start rubbing mics all over your mouth if you might be COVID positive (laughs) that was a bad idea Rudy that was a bad call (laughs) Good defense, and bad call. I know. <laughs> so here we are one year later, seeing the cost of the pandemic. There's a billion dollars in unpaid water debt. There's a billion dollars in unpaid energy bills. We don't even know what a stimulus check is going to do to help with that. Now, Nicole, I know you've been following this, and this kind of flew under the radar. But now, Republican lawmakers are want to help Californians pay those utility
0: bills? Yeah, this kind of didn't get a lot of attention this week. Normally, when Republican state lawmakers propose things, they're such a small minority in the state legislature that I'm kind of like, take everything that they say or or bills they propose with a grain of salt. But this is one of those things I'm like, hey, Democrats might actually bite on this. They want to basically forgive a lot of this utility debt using Money from this big surplus we're looking at in the state budget, and then also California is looking at even more funding from the federal government on this stimulus package. So I thought that was interesting. It's not something you would see Republicans propose, especially in uh, other red states uh, paying off people's utility bills. That might be called socialism.
1: Yeah, they're gonna have a tough ride at CPAC <laughs> next year, but I guess at least we don't have a king, right? <laughs>
0: Well, speaking of, if you were busy brushing up on the British monarchy and the line of succession after that Harry, Meghan, Oprah interview... Wait, what interview? Not a fan of the royals, I see. Well, Governor Newsom gave his State of the State speech this week. He said the end of the pandemic is right around the corner. He acknowledged the extreme losses of life while touting his achievements managing the state in an unprecedented pandemic. But he broke from tradition and delivered the address to an empty Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles.
1: Now, usually the state of the state would have happened earlier, with the governor laying out his agenda before the state legislature in Sacramento. But like pretty much everything else in COVID life, this year is different. And on top of everything else, a recall effort meant Newsom had to make a case for keeping his job.
0: Well, Nigel, let's bring in another voice into the conversation here for some perspective on the speech. Scott Rod is Cap Radio's government and accountability reporter. Glad you could join us. Glad to be on. So knowing that we've all been hearing about this speech for a few days now, let's go around the virtual table. Maybe each of us can give one part of it that stuck out for us. Scott, maybe we could start with you.
2: Sure. What struck me was that Governor Newsom was trying to strike this very positive optimistic tone sort of recognizing where we've been in the pandemic over the last year being in dodger stadium in front of thousands and thousands of empty seats was supposed to represent those californians who have died during the pandemic so you know he had recognized this challenge that we've all faced over the last year but bringing it to the current moment it was very much him making the case that we are in a better place we are making progress and without declaring victory, he sort of... Seemed to allude to, you know, we're at the very end of this. He said, you know, the mm-hmm. light at the end of the tunnel is brighter than it ever has been. Yeah. And not to read into this too much, one of his patented phrases, meeting the moment, he actually used it in the past tense. He said, mm-hmm. we have met the moment. And so that said, you know, we had this challenge and we rose to the occasion. So that's what stood out to me. I'm going to kick it over to Nigel. What, what did you take away from it?
1: Sure. I think we're one year into this. And the way it looked four, five, six months ago, I think that this speech right now would have lifted everybody up and made everybody feel a lot better. I noticed him speeding through this stuff. I didn't quite get what was happening with Dodger Stadium until we talked about it later. I understand the imagery and I understand kind of him trying to make a, make a point. But one thing that jumped out to me is, of course, this is the launch of him defending himself when it comes to the potential recall. This is him saying, because Falconer spoke before, and of course he's probably going to be a public nominee, and, and gave a response said, you know, we're, this is not going to work. And then Newsom came out and said, you know, I'm ready to, to grab this by the horns. Now we never said the word recall, but it mm-hmm. was interesting to, to see him actually sort of start to tackle this issue. And it's going to be probably the defining element of maybe the rest of his at least first administration. Uh, Nicole, what about you?
0: Yeah, I was gonna say kind of that same thing. You know, this definitely sounded like a campaign speech, right, at this uh, stadium with the symbolism and the B-roll of the vaccinations happening in the parking lot. He did not use the word recall, but he he called it a partisan political power grab pushed by doomsdayers and naysayers. So some strong language there. And the other thing is that he acknowledged mistakes made. He's taken a lot of heat for these business restrictions. I realized just today that it's been five months since the French laundry thing, and he is still hearing about that. So he acknowledged that, but kind of glossed over it and very positively like made the case that he can get the state through the rest of this.
1: We have a little bingo card for, uh, for the <laughs> different <that>. statements <laughs> <laughs> from from Governor Newsom. Unfortunately, I did not get bingo. Uh, we did meet the moment or met the moment. We did impactful. Uh, we did real time, uh, but we missed some of the other ones uh, that I was kind of hoping for, like localism is determinative. Mm-hmm. Any big phrases jump out to you guys?
0: I think uh, the localism is determinative. I've joked about that on this podcast before.
2: (laughs) I didn't hear the word iterative, you know, and and, and I think that kind of speaks to what he was going for because, you know, when he says iterative, that often means sort of in increments, we're making progress slowly but surely. This speech to me wasn't about iterative progress. It was about rising to the occasion, meeting the challenge. I mean, he he listed off um, after sort of glossing over rather his mistakes, you know, very quickly saying we had challenges with business reopenings, but we've got money going to them. Uh, you know, we, we were working on reopening schools and we had this big deal that went through in the legislature, sort of like smoothing over the rough surfaces that, you know, there's so much more nuance to that it's been very rocky along the way. So going back to, you know, that iterative piece, <laughs> I didn't hear that. And I'm not surprised that I didn't hear it.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit more about the style of the speech, because for the past year, we've been watching Newsom in these very long, drawn out, sort of wonky uh, press conferences, right, where he speaks in this very jargony way. This was a much shorter speech, pre-written, of course, so he wasn't kind of rambling. How did that go over? Because I noticed that he got a little, it seemed nervous and kind of sped through the first the first half of it.
1: Well, he might have been a little bit thrown off by the helicopters in Echo Park. That's, of course, my neighborhood. And they are <laughs> flying all the time. Searchlights galore. I, I do wonder if, uh, yeah, a big empty space and, and him having to talk about this. At, at this time, again, we're, 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 we're at one year, and he is trying to do two things at the t- same time, right? He's trying to memorialize all the people that have died, all the people whose lives are forever changed. At the same time, he's trying to say everything's OK, and it's getting better. And that's a tough balance to strike. It seems like because this is a guy who, you know, has had a pretty unimpeded rise up, and now as governor, rubbers it in the road.
2: It's so interesting to see him reading off of a prepared speech, and it reminded me kind of of Donald Trump when we saw him read off a prepared speech. Very <laughs> wow! What a
0: comparison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Let, well, let me. Let... <laughs> so the 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 overlap that I see, they obviously have. Dr- dr- diametrically opposed sort of right. styles, right? But they're very much in their element when they're riffing on their mm-hmm. own, when they're sort of improvising. You know, they're sort of a jazz musician going off on a solo. Very <laughs> different types of solos, but solos nonetheless. When you yeah. put a sheet of music in front of them and they have to read off of it, it's just so interesting and sort of strange to see them read off of a speech. And with Newsom, it did seem like he wasn't quite in his element. He couldn't go off and provide stats off the top of his head and sort of, you know, use his the language that he often sort of relies on. So it was just very interesting to see that in comparison, as you said, to the press conferences that we've been through you know, for the last year.
0: Although I did notice he tries to throw as many numbers as he possibly can into these things, which as a radio reporter, you know, to avoid. (laughs) Um, Scott, I want to get your quick take on reaction, both from Democratic, you know, Newsom supporters and Republicans who are more behind the recall.
2: Well, Democrats said, look, this is the speech that we needed. We, you know, we need this sort of forward-looking, optimistic message right now. And an acknowledgement that despite all the challenges we've had over the last year, that significant progress has been made. And I mean, reaction from uh, from Democrats was, was positive, as expected. Republicans, on the other hand, said, look, this speech was off the mark. It didn't acknowledge the stumbles along the way. It didn't adequately address the concerns that Californians still have. You know, we still have so many people out of work, still businesses closed. So right. there was he, a lot of criticism from Republicans. Yeah.
0: And he didn't even mention the unemployment, which has been probably the biggest failure of the state through this entire pandemic. Right.
2: Absolutely. He did not mention that at all.
0: All right, Scott. Well, I want to turn to a more specific story that you've been leading on. We talked earlier about how California Republicans were not impressed with the speech right complaints about the lack of transparency, basic bumbling of the state's opening and closing criteria. You did an investigation recently that touched on some of this. What did you find about the state's contract process over the past year?
2: So the state has been in a state of emergency over the last year, and that gives the governor a lot of latitude to award contracts and skip over the traditional process of competitive bidding. During a state of emergency, contracts can just be awarded. The benefit of that is you don't have to wait around. Services can get going right away. However, no-bid contracts often raise questions and deserve scrutiny. Um, So what I did is looked at the overlap between no-bid contracts and contributions that had been made to Governor Gavin Newsom and found that there was an interesting overlap. There were a handful of contracts worth – millions of dollars, in one case over a billion dollars, that were handed out in a no-bid fashion to companies that had contributed tens of thousands, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars to Newsom and his committees. So this raised concern among government ethics folks that I spoke to because they said, you know, while there isn't anything illegal here in the findings, there isn't clear evidence of a quid pro quo, it does raise concerns in the minds of Californians because they want to know that the state is awarding these contracts to the companies that can give the best services possible, not in a form of favoritism.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, what's the, been the reaction to this piece? Because I, I know a lot of you know Newsom opponents probably seized on it, right?
2: They definitely did. I mean, it was kind of red meat for the recall folks. They grabbed onto this and said, look, this is just further evidence of kind of cronyism, further evidence of favoritism and lack of transparency, which are issues that those recall folks have been hitting on, you know, since they launched their campaign. Uh, In the legislature, uh, Republican Assemblyman Kevin Kiley called for an investigation into Newsom. However, you know, that doesn't have a snowball's chance in heck without (laughs) Democrats' (laughs) support. So – you know, I reached out to a bunch of Democrats in the legislature and said, hey, is there any appetite for this kind of investigation into these contracts being handed out and contributors to Newsom and either got crickets or a resounding no? Hmm. <laughs> so the the reaction was definitely split in very different ways between Democrats and Republicans.
0: Cap Radio's Scott Rod, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me on.
0: All
1: right, coming up. If it feels like we've had an affordable housing crisis for a few decades at this point, that's because we have. And trying to get communities and cities to agree on how to rezone so more housing can come on the market is a pretty impossible task.
0: Stay tuned for more California State of Mind. It's California State of Mind from Cap Radio and Cal Matters. I'm Nicole Nixon. And
1: I'm Nigel Duara. Now, tell me if you've heard this one before California has a housing crisis. Okay, yes, this is something that we all know here in the Golden State. But whether you pay rent or you pay a mortgage, there is general agreement that affordable housing is an oxymoron from Wairika all the way down to Imperial Beach.
0: Right. Well, one thing that's not going away is the problem of zoning. California was the first state to implement single-family zoning rules back more than a century ago. Recent efforts to bring more multifamily units to those areas have run into everything from NIMBY neighborhoods to ineffectual spending by local governments.
1: So we're going to get an update on all of this from CAP Radio's Chris Nichols. Welcome back, Chris. Hey, Nigel. Great to be here. Thank you. So let's start with the big question. How many more housing units does California need to get out of this current affordable housing crisis? Is there one kind of big number that we can grasp?
3: Well, if you go by Gavin Newsom's number, when when he was running for governor a couple years back, he set the number at three and a half million new housing units by 2025. Uh, California, of course, is nowhere near getting to that goal. That would essentially amount to like four to five hundred thousand new housing units per year. California is producing closer to 100,000 per year. Sure, and it seems
1: like it's a big part of Newsom's, at least it's the first run of his administration here, that he is gonna build affordable housing. And it sounds like what happens is they hand it down to these different agencies, these regional governments, and then the regional governments get the, the bill and they say, okay, we're supposed to build this much. And then what happens? Can, can you walk me through what happens after this sort of assignment is given to them?
3: Certainly there are there's community opposition. Um, that is a very powerful force. Um, if you have neighborhood groups that say, hey, we just simply don't want this housing in our neighborhood and they show up to a city council meeting or a, a county board of supervisors meeting. They're very vocal and it puts pressure on those local officials who who are in the position of either saying yes or no to more housing production. But I think that community opposition is, is a key force.
1: Sure. And it's got to be a lot different seeing, you know, uh, an email from the housing department versus having, you know, your constituents in your face, or I guess in this case, over a Zoom meeting, yelling at you.
3: Exactly. And I think, you know, you you have groups that are organized, they invested in a neighborhood and their goal is to in a lot of cases, keep that neighborhood the same way. Um, They may have spent a lot of money, and they are sort of entrenched in a lot of cases in, in keeping it that way.
1: So let's talk about where you are in Sacramento. If we look at the efforts to rezone for more multifamily housing, and to break that down, that just means a lot more people in a smaller amount of space. There's been some attempts at reform, right? What's happening in Sacramento trying to say yes in my backyard, or at least say no to the folks who are saying not in my backyard.
3: Well, Sacramento was the first major city in the state to actually move forward with a plan to to change single family zoning, to completely reform it. Um, in January, the city council voted unanimously to move forward with that plan. It would uh, allow small multifamily homes in all residential neighborhoods um, often what's called the missing middle category of housing, not these big, dense apartment buildings and not the low density single family housing tracks, but things like duplexes and triplexes and fourplexes. The discussion on the topic is not over. The city council is going to take a final vote on that document in December.
1: Now, not to pick on the NIMBY folks in, in Sacramento because there are the not in my backyard folks all over the state. But what is part of their argument?
3: Well, I think, uh, you know, the the argument is probably similar in a lot of places. They are worried about losing the calm and the quiet that they value in their neighborhood. They're concerned about having to deal with things like extra traffic and parking hassles. Some of the other arguments um, are that they do not think that building this higher density housing will actually lead to more affordable housing. And to be clear, at least with the city officials in Sacramento, they are not claiming it will be affordable for everyone. This missing middle duplexes and triplexes, they use the term lower cost housing. Chris, you
1: also spoke with home builders about whether they're seeing this demand for the missing middle housing options you were talking about earlier would you find out and does the building industry and developers believe that they can deliver lower cost products?
3: Well, I found that builders generally support these zoning changes. Uh, Dan Dunmoyer of the California Building Industry Association told me that any new home building opportunity is welcome news for his industry. They'd like to be building more. Um, they do think that there is some demand for these products, these duplexes and triplexes. But all of the builders I spoke with cautioned that this really won't put a huge dent in the housing shortage, and they also are kind of skeptical that it'll make things much more affordable. They say the same factors that make single family homes expensive, the long regulatory process, expensive environmental requirements, those will all make products like duplexes and triplexes expensive as well. And they also believe that this missing middle housing, it won't work everywhere. So let's go back
1: to where we started, looking at the entire state. We were thinking about different ways that these things don't get built. Seems like there's a bunch of reasons. There's the NIMBY stuff. What other big elements apply statewide? For certain, I would think of CEQA, right? The environmental review process?
3: Yes, I think the environmental review process is a big one that can stretch the building out over many, many years, uh, builders will tell you that that can mean the difference between whether they can make a profit and go forward with a project or not. Um, and if they can't, they just won't build a project. I think also you'll hear from developers and builders that, uh, the fees that are added on to projects are a really big deal. Um, cities across California, they do that in order to make sure that they can pay for the services for new communities. Um, But those fees are what then end up leaving your your home that you purchase with a high price. So uh, those are the main things you hear from the building community is that you really need to get um, red tape out of the way.
1: And that makes sense. When you look at Southern California where I am, there are certainly vast tracts of land in certain places like Riverside County, and there's a big need for affordable housing. The county will zone these things for affordable density housing, and then nobody's going to build. When you're in Sacramento, are you seeing the same issue that there's space, there's will, there's people who need the homes, but there's just no money in building affordable housing?
3: I think one good example might be a a builder that I spoke with uh, just recently uh, in a small town west of Sacramento in in Winters. Um, And this is a builder that actually... They build duplexes. They they build some of this missing middle housing that we're talking about. And so I went and visited the site and um, they're, you know, plugging in these duplexes in the same community where they're building single family homes and the single family homes are going for about in the 500,000s. And so I asked, well, if those are going for that much, the, the duplexes must be what half or somewhere near half. And they said, no, they're, they're in the 400,000s. They said, this is still California. So the point being, it it's still expensive. Whether you're building a home with a, a shared wall or a detached single family home, uh, these costs are, are real, they're expensive, and um, they, they are a barrier to to making the homes affordable.
1: And now I'm going to ask you for your crystal ball prediction. If you're looking ahead 20 years, where do you see us ending up? What's going to happen?
3: What will it look like? Well, I'm definitely intrigued to see how these groups that are sort of the, the yes in my backyard groups, the, the pro housing groups, how much sway they end up having at their local governments at the state level. Um, I think they are becoming more vocal, uh, potentially more powerful. I think there's room for more growth. It just may not always be in the big sprawling track homes that California has built. For generations, it may be in the the urban core, sort of small multifamily unit growth.
1: Chris Nichols of Cap Radio, thank you so much for your help today and for talking to
3: us. My pleasure. Thanks, Nigel.
0: <laughs> Nigel, I just don't understand how after decades of trying to solve this, watching it continue to get worse, here we are, it continues to get worse. Well,
1: Nicole, I have some terrible news for you. It's actually getting much worse. What we're seeing is the developers... Dang it. (laughs) Dang it is right. Developers don't want to build. Cities zone and they just walk away. And then you have the NIMBYs. And almost every forecast says it's going to keep getting worse unless there's some major changes in how we build housing and how we pay for it. And you can guess how that's going. I'll tell you what. It's bad.
0: (laughs) Well, on that note of sunshine, Nigel, that's California State of Mind for this week. Thanks so much for hosting with me this time, Nigel. It was great having you. Thank
1: you so much for having me. I am so glad the leaf blowers are not blowing right now. The dogs aren't barking. The cat isn't biting me. I am having an okay hour here.
0: (laughs) That's good to hear. Well, Elizabeth will be back next week. Until then, Nigel, have a great one and see you next time.
1: Nicole, you too.
0: California State of Mind is a collaboration of Cal Matters and Cap Radio. It's
1: edited by Tess Vigland and produced by Jen Picard.
0: Sally Schilling is our executive producer. Devin Cortan is the technical director.
1: Chris Hagen is our digital editor. Margarita Noriega and Chris Bruno are our masters of marketing. Our social media is run by Emily Gilbert and Courtney Fong.
0: Nick Miller is editor at Cap Radio, and Joe Barr is our chief of content. Dave Lesher is editor at Cal Matters. Our theme song is "Melifera Ligustica by Isaac Joel. Thanks for listening to California State of Mind. See you next week.
2: Support for California State of Mind comes in part from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company and from Sutter Health.